Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. I'm very excited for this week's guest, Dr. Kalea Waddles, a naturopathic physician specializing in fertility and functional medicine. She's dedicated to using this patient-centered method to support patients anywhere on their fertility journey, whether they are thinking about getting pregnant for the first time or exploring advanced fertility treatments. Looking at genetics, someone said to me recently, which really stuck with me, that our genetics are the part of our story that are written in pen, but our epigenetics is the part that's written in pencil. And so we can do some editing to our epigenetics, which really affects how our genes are expressed. And I think that's so powerful because that tells us that our epigenetics, which is like our exposures and our nutrition and our stress management and our exercise, that all of that it actually affects how our genetics show up. And that feels so good because we can do something about that. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. I'm not someone who keeps up with celebrity news, but when celebrity news involves infertility or fertility treatment, then I do take a read. And this week, there's been a number of articles that have had headlines like this. Courtney Kardashian reveals a serious side effect of IVF medication. They put me into menopause. Courtney Kardashian reveals IVF treatment put her into menopause. Now you may think it's not important what celebrities say about their IVF experience, but it is because they have large platforms. They have a lot of people who are following who are definitely influenced by what they have to say and what they do. And so it's really important that we clarify this misconception. IVF medication does not put women into menopause, plain and simple. Now, there are medications that are used in IVF protocols that can make women feel menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, headaches, brain fog, mood swings for the short period of time that they're used. However, there are a lot of protocols that do not utilize this medication, and it does not cause menopause. The IVF medications that we use can cause cramping, bloating, fatigue, mood changes in some women, and there's a variation. Some women will have very mild symptoms and some will have more symptoms. Now, what about the fact that we retrieve so many eggs during IVF? Doesn't that speed up the process of us losing eggs? And the answer is no. I get this question a lot. Well, you're going to retrieve 15 eggs. Aren't you going to use up all my eggs? And no. We're not, because the fact of the matter is there's a cohort of eggs that are released every month that are available to be stimulated during the IVF process. 
And if you were going through a natural cycle, you would have a cohort of eggs that are released every month. One would be selected to naturally grow and ovulate and the rest die off. So we take advantage of this fact during IVF to allow all those other eggs in the cohort to also grow. Some patients are making five eggs. Some might be making 20 plus eggs, all normal, depending on your situation. It depends on what number of eggs your ovaries are releasing every month. And whether you go through IVF or whether you're conceiving without assistance or whether you're on birth control pill, you are losing eggs every month. It is just the fact of time passing. It's really important to understand that there's no reason to be concerned about IVF putting you into menopause. I don't know if this was taken out of context. I don't know if these headlines were just produced to be salacious. They're clickbait. It definitely makes people concerned, those who are going through IVF. They want to read about that. They want to have an understanding. Is that going to happen to them? I don't know her story. I don't know what's going on in her case. But there's no truth to this. I hope that this was helpful. I hope this clarified any misunderstandings with these articles that we've been seeing in the news. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoy today's interview. I love learning from all types of practitioners, and I'm all about finding a team to support you on your fertility journey. That might be your conventional medicine physician, a naturopathic physician, a nutritionist, an acupuncturist, and anyone else that might be able to offer support and insight about how to best help you. Many who are listening may not have the time or the access to a large team of practitioners, and that is why I bring on a variety of professionals each week to give you different perspectives on supporting the fertility journey. I'm very excited for this week's guest, Dr. Kalea Waddles. Dr. Waddles is a naturopathic physician specializing in fertility and functional medicine. She earned her doctorate from Bastyr University and is certified as a functional medicine practitioner by the Institute for Functional Medicine. Dr. Waddles combines her naturopathic and functional medicine training to treat patients with a functional fertility perspective, using a root cause science-based body systems approach to cultivating a fertile body. She's dedicated to using this patient-centered method to support patients anywhere on their fertility journey, whether they are thinking about getting pregnant for the first time or exploring advanced fertility treatments. Welcome, Dr. Waddles. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be invited to be on the show with you. You are a naturopathic physician, and many who are listening may not be familiar with what makes a naturopathic physician different from a conventional medicine physician. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach that you have and what is the difference? Sure. So I'll start by telling you a little bit about naturopathic medicine. So for those who aren't familiar with naturopathic doctors, we're actually trained in the basic sciences, the clinical sciences, pharmacology, all of the conventional modalities. But we also have additional training in lifestyle medicine, therapeutic nutrition, exercise, botanicals. So we really have a full toolbox to choose from, which I think is particularly well-suited to fertility management, and we'll talk about that. And naturopathic doctors are really guided by these principles that teach us that we use the least invasive therapies first and kind of work our way up through what we call a therapeutic mm -hmm. order. So we certainly utilize medications or even surgery if needed, but we always start with lifestyle first. We also really value a strong therapeutic partnership between patient and practitioner. That's definitely part of the healing relationship. And mm -hmm. then I'll also add that I am certified as a functional medicine practitioner. And so that is 
related in philosophy to naturopathic medicine, but it's really defined by this body systems approach that we take to patient care, which means we know humans are complex and we really honor those complexities. So we look at someone's entire body systems and that for me means their assimilation mechanisms, which is basically their digestion. We look at defense and repair, which is your immune function and your inflammatory mechanisms. We look at your cellular energy production, your biotransformation and detoxification capacity, mm -hmm. your transport mechanisms, which it's your circulation and your lymphatic flow. We look at your communication, which is your hormones and your neurotransmitters, and then the structural integrity of your body. And that means big structures like your skeleton down to the tiny structures like your cellular membrane. So all of that to say, mm -hmm. it's really a whole person, body systems, root cause, patient-centered approach. Yeah, I really like that because I'm an integrative professional. And so it's very similar. And I've done some functional medicine work as well. So I really love the approach that you have. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you work in women's health and particularly fertility? I think the biggest piece to this was in my second year of medical school, I had a baby. And that entrance into motherhood was such a transformational experience. And I realized at that point, I wanted that baby so bad. And, and I wanted that feeling of entering parenthood for anybody who wanted that. Mm -hmm. So that led me to seek out some preceptorship opportunities in my local fertility clinic. So I rotated through three of my local IVF clinics. And I realized that so many of the patients were there because they had insulin resistance mm -hmm. or nutritional insufficiencies, or they had loads of oxidative stress. They were very inflamed. And I thought, gosh, the medicine that I can provide, maybe it would help patients to not require IVF. But even mm -hmm. if they still did need fertility treatment, I know that I could improve outcomes. So I really saw this gap between what we might consider lifestyle medicine, and then advanced reproductive technologies. And I really wanted to bridge that gap. So mm -hmm. focused really the rest of my clinical training on how can I support fertility patients no matter where they're at in that process. Yeah, I think that's fabulous because you're right. There is this gap where when you're working with a conventional physician, many of them are not looking at lifestyle, but you might need a conventional medicine physician. Can patients who are going through fertility treatment still work with a naturopathic physician? Because someone might have this perception that well, if I'm doing fertility treatment, then I can't be working with somebody who's naturopathic because they see that mm -hmm. as maybe the opposite of the spectrum. Yeah, I love this question because I'm a huge proponent of the collaborative care team. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, we can work together because like I mentioned, if someone's going through fertility treatment, I'm really in the business of cultivating resiliency in the human organism, right? So mm -hmm. I'm there to support inflammation and nutrition and oxidative stress and supporting our endometrium, all of these things that we know help with fertility outcomes. And our reproductive endocrinologists are fabulous. They have a job to do, and they don't always, as you mentioned, have time to mm -hmm. dig into all of those underlying causes, all of the lifestyle pieces. So that's what I'm there to do. And I think it's a beautiful relationship. And if there's an opportunity for anyone going through fertility treatment to work with someone who can handle those pieces, I think that's really going to benefit everyone, really. Yeah, I totally agree. Although I think one of my struggles always is 
A lot of times when we work on doing root cause medicine, whether it be looking at nutrition or looking at sleep patterns, things like that, these things take time. And a lot of patients come in, they've been waiting for years. And so sometimes there's some frustration with us talking about things like nutrition or things to try to improve insulin resistance because those things don't happen overnight. They can take months. So that's always my real challenge is trying to really work with patients and convince them that it's necessary to take the time. And in the long run, it may actually save them time. I deeply relate to this conversation. This is like the conversation I have day one when I'm working with a new patient. People hear me say all the time, we have to plan for pregnancy like we plan for our wedding. Mm -hmm. It's a long process. And I think it helps to give a visual. I'll go back to that model of folliculogenesis, right? The way that we mature eggs. And I think this is a really helpful visual because when we look at the pathway from a primordial follicle, which is a little egg sac that's just starting to develop, all the way to a pre-ovulatory follicle, which is when we're getting ready to release an egg that can become a baby, mm -hmm. that whole process takes roughly 10 menstrual cycles, right? That's a huge length of time. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at this pathway from follicle that's kind of almost big enough to ovulate until when it's released, that's about three months. That's where our nutrition and our low toxicity and our antioxidants mm -hmm. is really, really powerful. I always set the expectation that I'm going to need a minimum of three to four months to really impact the egg that can become your baby. And I think that's a really important conversation to have because most of us who wanted to get pregnant, we wanted to get pregnant yesterday. Right. So we really have to set some realistic expectations. Yeah. And I think it's just important to note that these are things that are going to help to support you when you are pregnant, postpartum Absolutely. and on past that, because it, it doesn't just stop with just having the positive pregnancy test. And so we're kind of laying the foundation for your health and your future child's health as well. Yeah. One of my teachers, you reminded me, she was a certified nurse midwife and she always said, we really have to start from a place of fullness because mm -hmm. it's it's such a, a process of giving to be pregnant and to be breastfeeding. And if we don't start from that place of fullness, it's so easy to get depleted. And mm -hmm. that's our goal. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. And I think we can see like when I was going through training and residency, we used to always say physicians who are pregnant would end up with a lot of complications. We would see that all the time. And I don't think it was by accident. It was a lot to do with the lack of sleep, the lack of taking care of themselves, the late nights, the not eating properly. And we did see higher rates of things like preeclampsia and preterm labor amongst physicians. So I think it's really important to pay attention to those things because they then can spill over into pregnancy. Yeah. And I'll back that up and just share from my personal experience that I had a second baby my last year of school. And, you know, I am a healthy body weight. Mm -hmm. I have a nutrition degree. I know how to eat healthy. I exercise almost every day. I meditate. I do all the right things. And I had pretty severe gestational hypertension in that second pregnancy because I was working 70 hours a week mm -hmm. and barely sleeping and was so stressed. And that stuff... <laughs> really matters. I completely agree. And that's why we're having these kind of conversations so we can see what kind of changes you can do to help you to have, you know, optimal fertility as well as optimize pregnancy. Absolutely.
Now, I love your approach, and I really wanted to get into some deeper topics today, which honestly, each one of those topics could have their entire podcast episode, if not more. We're hearing a lot these days about inflammation. It's really Mm -hmm. a topic that's coming into a lot of integrative medicine and functional medicine and more. Now we're seeing it when we talk about general health. But why is inflammation so important for those who are trying to conceive? I have been delighted to see inflammation getting the attention that it really needs because I think it's something that's often overlooked, but Mm -hmm. actually very, very important in terms of fertility. And part of the reason why I think it's becoming more mainstream is because we're seeing the role of inflammation and aging within our immune system. Obviously, immune function has been a big topic Mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, and we're seeing lots of overlap between the aging in our immune system and the aging in our reproductive system that's really driven by inflammation. So this term that some may have heard of that I'm using all the time now is inflammaging. And it's really an accelerated aging process that's driven by chronic low-grade inflammation. Mm -hmm. So we can start to tease this apart a little bit. People always ask me, what are these sources? Where's this inflammation coming Mm -hmm. from, right? And so the things I'm thinking about are, is there some chronic infection going on? The most common sites I see, and I'd love to hear what you see Mm -hmm. too, I see periodontal disease, so Mm -hmm. infection or inflammation of the gums, and then also dysbiosis, Mm -hmm. so an imbalance in the gut bacteria that can lead to some inflammation stemming from our gastrointestinal system. I also see lots of inflammation coming from our diet. That means food sensitivities that we're not aware of, low antioxidant intake. We know that when we eat For example, fruits and vegetables that are full of antioxidants and polyphenols that that allows our gut bacteria, our good gut bacteria Mm -hmm. to flourish, which can protect us from some inflammation in the gut. Trans fatty acids in the diet, which are ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. There's also inflammation that can come from environmental toxic Mm -hmm. exposures, from even some medications, from smoking, from obesity, especially around our abdominal organs. There's tons of places we can go searching for inflammation. And it's different for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes it's hard to pinpoint because there might be various contributors. But inflammation is really important for us to look for because when we have chronic inflammation, that can also lead to some inflammatory processes within the ovary. Mm -hmm. It's called ovarian atrophy. So essentially that tissue is just wasting away. Mm -hmm. And we see that this can be associated with things like premature ovarian insufficiency or diminished ovarian reserve, which means we're essentially losing our pool of egg cells that are able to be ovulated. So in terms of our fertility longevity, inflammation is at the top of my list. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of those things, like you said, whether it be periodontal disease or gut dysbiosis, it can easily be overlooked because if you're not somebody that's dealing with serious gastroesophageal reflux disease or you have, you know, chronic diarrhea, then you may not think, hey, I'm fine. It's fine. You know what? I have a bowel movement every two days. It's not a big deal. Like you don't even identify that you have a problem. But in reality, like you said, with the toxins, with the nutrition and all that, that's caused this gut dysfunction and the microbiome, we're discovering how important it is for fertility. And I think this is kind of one of the areas now that we're starting to see evolve. We're starting to see that there's even the uterus has its own microbiome. 
And so I think that all of those things that you mentioned is really important to take a look at, like get to the dentist when you're trying to conceive. Don't wait until you have a cavity or you need a root canal. Yep, absolutely. I say get to the dentist when there's chronic inflammation. I'm often doing a comprehensive stool analysis to figure out what Mm -hmm. is going on in the gut. And then I also, I don't know about you, but I add onto all of my preconception panels something called a high sensitivity C-reactive protein that's just kind of a general marker of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And if that's elevated, then that gives me the signal like, okay, it's time to go digging to figure out what's at the root of this inflammation, Mm -hmm. because really that's how we're going to make a big impact is to remove the trigger. That's the most important piece. So I think there's, you know, lots we can do in terms of screening and then further investigation if needed and then treatment. I agree. And again, it's difficult because it's a lot of work. It takes time. I can't just be like, here, take this pill and we'll help to reduce your inflammation. It has to do with the entire lifestyle. And I think it's also important to mention that it's not just for female. This also includes men. And we often forget that. Absolutely. It takes two to tango. I know we've all heard that before, but almost anything in terms of inflammation or oxidative stress or mitochondrial support or nutrition, Mm -hmm. lifestyle medicine, it really all applies to each partner involved in this conception opportunity. And I think sometimes we overlook that because we say, oh, we have a normal semen analysis, so we don't have to worry about that. But there's a lot behind those numbers. What is the quality of the DNA of the sperm, regardless of what the numbers, quote unquote, show us? And so I think sometimes that's missed. I absolutely agree. And I'll also just add that sometimes, unfortunately, I see female patients that are quite far into fertility treatment Mm -hmm. and they actually have not even had a semen analysis for for a variety of reasons. And so that's always one of my first questions at an intake of, have we done a semen analysis already? Mm -hmm. Because we need to kind of check that off the list before we move any further. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the things that it often happens in my patients who have PCOS because they know already that they have an issue. I have an issue. That's the issue. I already know. I don't ovulate. That's probably the problem. But you can definitely have two issues. In fact, it's about a third of the time that it's two issues. And so it's really important to do that very early on because we don't need to be driving in the wrong direction and have to come back. Fabulous point. And I 100% agree. You know, often I get asked a lot of questions about what supplements should I take to support my fertility? And a lot of the supplements that we use are antioxidants and they are used to combat oxidative stress, which kind of takes us to our next topic about oxidative stress. Why is it important for us to try to reduce oxidative stress when we're trying to conceive? Yeah, this is such an important conversation and this might morph into also a conversation about mitochondria, Mm -hmm. which I love to talk about. So oxidative stress essentially means that you're exposed to compounds that can damage DNA. And this happens just by being alive. Mm -hmm. We generate oxidative stress just by our metabolism working, the air we breathe. And our body has innate mechanisms to combat oxidative stress. It's our antioxidants. But often we are not eating the fruits and vegetable intake that's required or we're really depleting our antioxidants because we're exposed to so many things that cause oxidative stress. And this is important because the DNA in sperm or our egg cells, it's fairly fragile. It's important that we really protect the DNA integrity of those cells because we're counting on Mm -hmm. them to become a whole new human. 
And so we really want to be aware of our exposures that can cause oxidative stress. And for me, that means also ensuring that we have adequate antioxidant capacity to combat that. So oftentimes when I'm doing my preconception testing, I'm looking at our major antioxidants, our vitamin C Mm -hmm. and glutathione. I'm also looking at markers of oxidative stress. And so one of my favorites is we can look at, is there damage to mitochondrial DNA? So I measure something Mm -hmm. called 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine, big old word. But basically that is a byproduct of uh, mitochondrial DNA being damaged. And I can test that. So I can see, do we have an imbalance between oxidative stress and our ability to combat that? And that's so important when we're looking to our preconception planning. Yeah. And I think a good visual, because you just mentioned vitamin C being an antioxidant, because a lot of people can't understand, like, what does it mean? But if you think of when, like, an apple and you leave it out and it get brown, or you put, like, lemon yeah. on the apple and it actually doesn't yeah. get brown, what we're doing with our antioxidants is trying to combat those changes. And we can't avoid it, like you said. All of us are aging, which is even more important as we age to be using antioxidants. And it's not just supplements, as you mentioned. Our nutrition, I think that's really priority because I get a lot of questions yep. about well, what supplement should I take? I'm like, let's take it back a little bit and let's focus on our nutrition and what we're eating because I'm not going to be able to fix that with supplements. Food first, always. Yes. In terms of antioxidants and protecting our mitochondria, there's so much we can do nutritionally and supplements are great. They're there for a reason. But people always say like, you can't out supplement a poor diet. And Mm -hmm. it's true. Yeah, definitely. Because I think sometimes there we go back to kind of the conventional model of trying to just treat the superficial things, but we're not getting to the root of what the issue is. And if you constantly are eating or exposed to processed foods, then whether you're using some kind of antioxidant supplement, it's not going to really help that situation. Foundations, always returning to those foundations. Yeah. So you had mentioned, I want to talk a little bit about uh, mitochondrial health. Because I think it's so important for fertility, but yet we don't really, I mean, yes, of course, in a, when you get to go to conferences or something, we start talking about it, but it's not something that's kind of the layman's discussion of fertility. Mm-hmm. And it's so very important, especially when it comes to female fertility. Can you tell us a little bit about why mitochondrial health is important? Whenever I talk about mitochondria, I hear my 10th grade biology teacher's voice in my head saying, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. So I always bring that up. That's the first thing I think about. We know now that all of the complex processes that an oocyte or an egg cell goes through require energy that's produced by our mitochondria. And I'll take that even a step further because I think emerging research is really suggesting that the potential for an embryo to be successful is really dependent on that egg cell's mitochondria and their ability to generate energy. So the way that I talk about this to patients is all of these steps that are required to make a baby, ovulation, fertilization, implantation, and then embryogenesis, which is the way that the embryo matures, they are all very energetically expensive Mm -hmm. processes, right? Energy is really the currency that we use to pay for those energetically expensive ways that we make new humans. So our mitochondrial health is really crucial to drive these pathways forward. Mitochondria are so, so, so important. And then also one concept or theme that I'm really researching lately is ovarian aging. Mm -hmm. And we see that there's an age-related decline in mitochondrial function. 
in the mutations of the mitochondrial DNA. We have less mitochondrial DNA copy numbers as we get older, right? This right. is one of the reasons why there's an age-related right. decline in fertility in general is because the mitochondria are struggling right. a little bit. And so it, it's important for everyone, but especially as we look, women are having babies later in life. And so I just want to make sure that their mitochondria are powered up appropriately. Yeah. And like you said, it's a, it just happens with aging, which is one of the reasons yeah. why as we age, we have more difficulties with the egg performing the process it needs to do. We see higher rates of genetic abnormalities in women as they age, which is one of the areas that is the biggest hurdle for us when it comes to fertility treatment, because we can't reverse aging. We can't make a embryo genetically normal, but the theory is supporting that mitochondrial health that will be able to have increased energy to be able to do those processes properly. What kind of things do mm -hmm. you suggest for optimal mitochondrial health? The very first thing I start with is nutrition, as we've talked about. I use a food plan that's from the Institute for Functional Medicine. It's called the Mito Food Plan, but essentially it is a low glycemic, phytonutrient-rich, fiber-rich food plan. I also love the Mediterranean mm -hmm. diet. I think that's really accessible, really well-researched in terms of fertility. So I think the themes here are that it's low in refined sugars, lots of healthy fats, lots of brightly colored fruits mm -hmm. and veggies, if we really have right. to simplify it. I also utilize some supplements here. So I think CoQ10 is the biggest one that many of us use. I call upon some antioxidants, like we've talked about this relationship between antioxidants and how that can protect our mitochondrial DNA. So I really like alpha-lipoic acid, N-acetylcysteine or NAC. I really love resveratrol. Then we can also look at some other supplements, magnesium, mm -hmm. green tea, curcumin, quercetin. We have a whole arsenal that we can choose from. And I'll say that as in choosing supplements, I kind of like to look at things that can have dual function. Mm -hmm. So let's say that I really want to support their mitochondria, but they also have elevated inflammation right. markers. I might use something like curcumin, mm -hmm. that's a great antioxidant, but also has an anti-inflammatory action. So I try to get, you know, more bang for my buck, if you will. And then I'm also using glutathione orally, intravenously is mm -hmm. an option. And then I also talk about just regular, moderate intensity exercise is also super important to stimulate our mitochondria. And I'll add a fun fact that we can use some kind of mild cold exposure to support our mitochondria. And I'm from Seattle. And so I was like, well, what does cold mean? But then I learned it's really if you're just in temps of around 60 degrees, which in Seattle, that's every day I'm below 60 degrees. And so spending some time in a little bit cooler weather can also really stimulate our mitochondrial biogenesis. So we're making more mitochondria and we have lots of tools that we can call upon. And before I forget, I know I'm talking a lot, but I just wanted to point out, I'm so happy that you're framing this conversation in terms of egg mm. health rather than egg mm -hmm. quality. I used to feel some tension mm. about this because I would go to conferences and I would hear people say, well, you can never improve egg quality. And I would be like up in arms about this because we see that we can improve even the quality of embryos in an IVF setting. But then I had a, a friendship with an embryologist mm -hmm. and we got to talking about it. And she said, I think we agree on this point. When we're talking about egg quality, 
we're really saying, is this egg cell genetically normal? It either has 23 chromosomes Mm -hmm. or it doesn't. That's what we're talking about. And egg health really describes these modifiable features that make an egg more likely to fertilize and then grow into an embryo. And that's everything we're talking about, the inflammaging, the oxidative Mm -hmm. stress, the mitochondrial function. So I'm really trying to say the things I do affect egg health. And I think you've really beautifully highlighted that, which I really appreciate. We have to realize that, yes, we can't go back and we can't reverse and we can't get more eggs. But I think you have some control. Egg health is really a combination of what is your age? What does your environment look like? And your genes. Okay, so we can control our environment. And we know that there are studies that show that women who have exposure to more environmental toxins, they are more likely to have fewer eggs that are retrieved and fewer embryos that are produced. And so I think that there's potential because we know that it's not like we're forever damaged. There's these eggs that are then growing. You know, is there a possibility that some of the things you're exposed to may be impacting But I think there's always potential for us to improve. And how empowering, right? If you're the patient, how empowering to feel like, wow, our our genes are not necessarily Mm -hmm. our destiny. Our early life exposures are not necessarily our destiny, that there's actually some impact that we can make with our intervention. So that feels so reassuring. We've always had this idea of, oh, this runs in the family or that runs in the family and we can't change it. But we know that's one of the things that the principles that functional medicine talks about. You know, it's a lifestyle. You could have your genes are the gun and then you are uh, pulling the trigger as your environment. Right. So you don't have to be like, well, this is the destiny. I think making changes. I'm always like even, for example, there's a lot of information now about weight and those who are overweight that impacting fertility. And I think, you know, we do know that there's research that shows that in cases of women who are overweight, that perhaps it's impacting success rates. And so I really always try to take that from a perspective of it's not necessarily more about the weight, but what is surrounding that, what kind of things are going on with the lifestyle. And I think rather than focusing on, oh, we need to lose 50 pounds, it's what kind of things can we do to improve your environment If you improve your blood sugar, if you lower your inflammation, I guarantee that it's going to improve things. Very much my philosophy as well. And I know this is like an entire conversation that we could have, but I just want to end this piece with looking at genetics. Someone said to me recently, which really stuck with me, that our genetics are the part of our story that are written in pen, but our epigenetics is the part that's written in pencil. And so we can do some editing to our epigenetics, which really affects how our genes are expressed. And I think that's so powerful because that tells us that our epigenetics, which is like our exposures and our nutrition and our stress management and our exercise, that all of that, it actually affects how our genetics show up. And that feels so good because we can do something about that. Also, the other thing that I try to say when we're talking about, you know, improving our nutrition or improving your sleep, it's, it's going to make you feel better overall. If you are going through fertility treatments or whether you're trying to conceive on your own, the process is stressful. So if we can do things to improve your nutrition, improve your sleep, it's going to improve 
everything on a different level. You're going to feel better. You're going to have more energy. You're going to have lower rates of anxiety when we do things to improve your lifestyle. And when I'm working with patients, I try to frame it like you're not a fertility patient. You're a human, right? And so our job is to really cultivate resiliency as a human and Mm -hmm. not your identity as a fertility patient because you're so much more than that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I wanted to circle back a little bit to nutrition. And I agree with you and Mediterranean diet. It's definitely something I recommend because I feel like it's approachable. It's like anybody can do that as opposed to things like going vegan or going keto. And we're seeing a lot of this now, especially I feel like I see keto everything, keto everywhere. And I'm not opposed to that, but I think it needs to be done in the right way because in any diet, You can be, you know, an unhealthy vegan. You can be an unhealthy keto. You can be an unhealthy eating Mediterranean diet. What's kind of the best overlying way to figure out how we can approach diet and which might be the best for us? Obviously, you need to work with a practitioner, but what's your advice on that? Nutrition is so beautiful because as you're saying, it's so customizable, right? Within any guideline that we're using, we can really tailor it. That's why I love to work with nutrition professionals because it really gives that support to customize. So let's take keto, for example. I'm very cautious about who I might recommend a ketogenic approach to. Usually it's with people that have pretty severe insulin resistance. I see can benefit, but I'm very cautious because my biggest hope for a fertility food plan is diversity. I want Mm -hmm. there to be lots of diversity because you've already heard how important antioxidant protection is to me. And really the best way to ensure a broad antioxidant protection is to get variety of brightly colored fruits and vegetables. That's the best way I know how to get all of those polyphenols, all of those antioxidants, Mm -hmm. all of those food-based compounds that are so protective of our DNA. And so when I'm developing a nutrition plan, I'm really looking at inflammation status. Mm -hmm. Are they able to manage their blood sugar? Because we know that keeping our blood sugar balanced is so important for our fertility because when our blood sugar is elevated, we have increased inflammatory processes that are happening. Then we have chronically elevated insulin, which goes into a whole other hormonal topic about how insulin can really lead to hormonal imbalances. So I really want to keep the blood sugar stable no matter who I'm treating. And for most people, that means eating adequate dietary protein. We're aiming for 25 grams of protein per meal, which is hard for me. It's hard for a lot of people, but I think our nutritionists can really help support what those meals look like. Every time we're having carbohydrates, I'm trying to mix that with fat Mm -hmm. or fiber because that really slows the release of glucose into our bloodstream. So I'm saying, you know, apples are not the enemy (laughs) here, but let's mix apples with almond butter or a handful of nuts. And so we can slow that glucose into the bloodstream. I really am focusing on dietary fiber, on adequate fatty acid intake, which we know is Really important. And something that I think about with fatty acids that we don't talk Mm -hmm. about very often is that it can really help to support the viscosity of our blood. And we really want healthy blood flow through Mm -hmm. our pelvic organs. So lots of good fatty acids and just making sure that someone is eating enough. I think I don't Mm -hmm. talk about that as often as I should, that sometimes Mm -hmm. the issue, it can be over calorie consumption, but also under calorie consumption. So just making sure that the energy balance is appropriate. Yeah, I agree. If I had to give one tip 
for anybody because I don't always have the time with every patient to spend talking about just nutrition. I usually say it's got to be focused on your sugar intake. We're not just talking about what kind of sugar you're putting in your coffee or whether you are eating candy. It is what kind of processed carbohydrates. That is really kind of the overlying thing. What are we talking about? Well, I find research that will tell me vegan is a good diet or keto is a good diet. But what do they all share when we talk about it overall? It's a reduction in the processed food. And so we can all agree that processed food really has no business. Now, it doesn't mean you can never enjoy French fries or you can never enjoy a cake. But, you know, it's more about trying to make that sprinkling in your diet as opposed to you are eating at a muffin at Starbucks every day and then having a processed food lunch and and really trying to figure out how we can add fiber and, and like you said, phytonutrients into the diet. Yeah. And I think we can train our metabolism when we're eating those healthy foods consistently that then when we do have the muffin or the french fries or whatever we can Mm -hmm. eat that and move on and our body Mm -hmm. can cope with that because we have all the antioxidants and we're having regular bowel movements and we don't have a sluggish metabolism so that's fine it's really you know less what we're doing and any you know special occasion it's really about what we're doing on a daily basis that's moving the needle You mentioned earlier about combination. If you are going to be having cake, just make sure you have your meal first. You're going to have a donut, have your meal first. I really experienced that. I I wore a CGM, continuous glucose monitor, for a while. And that really helped me to see that I could eat like a, a few bites of a grilled cheese sandwich and I would see a spike. Or I could have a meal and then have a whole donut and see a very similar spike to when it was just the cheese sandwich on its own. And so when you're combining having a lot of fiber, like you said, or healthy fats and protein, that's going to help to slow that spike of blood sugar down. Yep. And I think that's something that's so helpful to talk about because people are always worried. I have my favorite thing. Like I love potatoes. I just Mm -hmm. love them. And it's not that you can't have potatoes. You can have potatoes. It's just about maximizing, as you're saying, the way that you're utilizing your nutrition. So if I'm going to have potatoes, that's fine. But on my plate, I'm going to have some protein. I'm going to have some roasted broccoli. You know what? I'm probably going to eat the majority of those components first, but then I'm still going to enjoy my potato and it's all good. Yeah, I agree. I'm somebody who I really like potatoes or sometimes like, yeah, I like to have a treat. If you try to eliminate, it doesn't work. It's not going to be successful if we say, you know what, never again. And that's one of the things I have with keto. If I tell somebody that they can't ever eat carbs and a lot of people are even eliminating fruits and vegetables, that's not really sustainable for most patients. Yep, I agree. That's my experience as well. I think for controlling blood sugar, one of the types of patients it's most important for is for the PCOS patient. And I know that there are a lot of women out there, especially the thin PCOS, that get missed. They see them as you are not overweight, so we don't really need to worry about it. You're, you're not going to be a diabetic. We don't look at the hemoglobin A1C or the insulin or fasting sugars because they're thin. And in fact, some of those patients who are on the thinner side actually can be more likely to become a diabetic, especially amongst certain ethnicities. And we see that in Asian women, for example, that you don't have to be someone who's real overweight to see diabetes or prediabetes. Yeah, I think this is honestly frustrating. The fact that we have this um, persona that we expect to see when patients Mm -hmm. have PCOS and the more that we learn about 
PCOS as a syndrome, meaning that the signs and symptoms can happen on a spectrum, we really have to open our mind to the possibility because I think someone like me or you who Mm -hmm. does a lot of labs on a lot of different people, we see PCOS popping up in patients that it's been missed for a long time and they're very frustrated by the time they get to our office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of times they've asked or they've been on Google. And obviously I think it doesn't mean that you should get your diagnosis on Google. But if you find that maybe your doctor is not working with you and you really think you need to get another opinion. I think one of my most frustrating things is patients with PCOS who then are told that they need to wait a year or so because they're young. Nothing could be further from the truth because I'm not really sure how a patient with PCOS who's not ovulating is supposed to conceive. I don't really understand it at all. (laughs) I'll second that and I'll also add that I don't know if you hear this all the time, but so many of my patients with PCOS in their 20s have been told they will never be able to conceive, which we know is just frankly not true. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with, unfortunately, inexperience. Like sometimes patients are getting this information for perhaps an urgent care setting or in an emergency room setting. I mean, it does happen. And even when you're working with a primary care, just understand that they're not seeing a large volume of PCOS patients. And so PCOS presents differently in every one. And like you said, there's just not this textbook image of what PCOS should look like. And so when someone is experiencing who doesn't have a lot of experience with PCOS, somebody who doesn't fit that model that they learned about in training, they're going to say, no, it's not PCOS or, oh, I always heard that you can't get pregnant. And I think this is somewhere where functional and integrative medicine really shines because we're willing to stay curious and to look at those drivers of PCOS, the gut health piece. Mm-hmm. We know that when there's intestinal permeability or hyperpermeability, really leaky gut, essentially, that we can have this systemic inflammation that, again, affects the ovaries, which can really impair progesterone production, which mm-hmm. is a big issue in PCOS. So there's a gut connection. There's potentially an environmental exposure connection, an adrenal connection. There's all of these pieces to a PCOS persona that we can look at, but you have to know Mm -hmm. to look. Definitely the PCOS patient benefits probably the most from using lifestyle interventions. And you can make a patient who's really, quote unquote, infertile. Um, Once you do some of these lifestyle changes, many of them get pregnant without assistance by just trying to do some changes with diet. The frustrating thing is that, yes, it takes time, but I think that they really see improvement from reduction of environmental toxins, from all the other lifestyle pieces that go with that to help improve and reduce inflammation, improve their blood sugar. And we see great results. I think it's important how you mentioned that there's some, you know, for example, the increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And when we frame it as, yes, we're doing all of these things to improve your fertility, but look how we can improve your lipid panel. Mm-hmm. and your inflammatory markers, that's really protective of your cardiovascular system. And it's important work to do for fertility and beyond. Yeah, because a lot of patients, yes, you're right, are ignored. Just, hey, just take the birth control pill until we, we need to get pregnant. But, you know, there's association also with mental health, increased yes. rates of anxiety, increased rates of depression yes. and eating disorders amongst those with PCOS. So we really need to look at them as a whole person, regardless of they're trying to conceive or not conceive, or whenever they start that journey, that we really should try to treat their PCOS. Yep. We're aligned in that goal. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about 
unexplained infertility. This mm-hmm. is always a very difficult topic because there's so much that we don't know as anything in medicine. But this is an area that's particularly frustrating because we don't have answers. And of course, we have ideas of what it might be. But I think this is an area where things like functional medicine or integrative medicine, working with a naturopathic physician, we can really mm-hmm. shine in that area because at least trying to support the patient. Tell yeah. me a little bit about your approach to the patient who has unexplained infertility. Man, isn't this one of the most frustrating diagnoses we hear? And the reason why it's like unexplained infertility. Okay, that's frustrating to hear. But then Mm -hmm. even more frustrating is that oftentimes it's like, well, that's the end of the exploration. You have unexplained infertility. Mm -hmm. You have IVF as an option, which maybe that is the option. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for that. But as we mentioned at the beginning of this talk, there's this gap like, well, there's so many other things that could be happening but we just have to stay curious and do that exploration. So I've talked about some of the underlying causes of unexplained infertility Mm -hmm. that I see. You know, maybe it is chronic inflammation or nutritional insufficiencies, toxic exposures, altered immune activity, especially when we look to the thyroid. I see that autoimmune thyroid disease is pretty common. It is often not assessed and Mm -hmm. I end up catching that. Adrenal dysfunction, oxidative stress, which we've talked about, Uh, And then also luteal phase issues, you know, low Mm -hmm. progesterone, short luteal phase. These are all things that we can look at when someone has unexplained infertility. And it's often very insightful. As I said, maybe it doesn't prevent the need for IVF, but I certainly believe that it can improve outcomes when we start to, as we're saying, Mm -hmm. cultivate resiliency in our health overall. So My philosophy here is that as functional medicine practitioners or integrative medicine, it's already part of our philosophy to approach people with this really comprehensive and body systems approach. So it just makes sense to turn these stones over. Yeah, I agree. It comes back to it doesn't mean that your doctor doesn't want to explore these. They either A, just aren't really trained in things like environmental toxins Mm -hmm. or nutrition because many physicians are not. And also B, it's the time factor that they are seeing a lot of patients and these type of things, they take a lot of time to let's talk about your nutrition. It's part of the reason why I have a website, why I have a podcast, why I do blogs and you have similar things is that you need to have other areas where patients can access this information and know that it's a source where we can trust the information. Absolutely. And this is a point well made that this kind of investigation is not what we learned in school. We had to Mm -hmm. really seek it out with advanced fertility specific training. And this is why I always, you know, recommend to people who reach out to me on social media, for example, and say, how do I find someone to work with? Well, find a practitioner that's really comfortable working with fertility because Mm -hmm. there's some nuances here Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to know where you're going to dig into all of these complicated and lesser known areas. And I think that's really important, but even more so that there's a way that even mentally and emotionally to deal with a fertility patient. Mm -hmm. Some patients may face working with a provider who's not in the field. If they're with their primary care physician or if they're working with someone who is in the natural space that's not in fertility, they may not Mm -hmm. really have an idea about certain things that are triggers for patients. And so I think it's really important to find someone who's more specific to fertility treatment. Yeah, great point. 
in closing, I always talk to my patients about mental well-being, and it's so important for us to really focus on mental health. And I think this is an area that often gets overlooked. And I try to encourage my patients to try to find joy in their everyday lives. What is something that brings you joy in your life? Oh, I have so much joy. It's hard to choose something, but I'll say having built-in support network. And I think this kind of goes into Mm -hmm. what we've been talking about. We know that, for example, behavior change happens in networks. Mm -hmm. And so something that brings me joy is that I have this really strong support system. And anytime I'm having challenges or obstacles, having that support system to lift you up and anchor you into your meaning and purpose, I think that's so incredibly important, no matter what you're working Mm -hmm. towards or struggling with. Having that support system that's really solid is so important. I I couldn't agree more with that because we've seen this in the last few years, even more so. I mean, we already have kind of a breakdown of community and families that are separated and we don't have grandparents potentially there or family members that there to support women or those women who go on to um, become mothers. And so we definitely see that in the pandemic, people being more isolated. And so it's really important to have connection and community for optimal (laughs) mental health. Yes. Connection is medicine Mm -hmm. and love is medicine and partnership is medicine. Yeah, I agree. Well, where can listeners connect with you? You can find me on my website at drkaliawaddles.com or on Instagram, which is my favorite, at Functional Fertility. And I really encourage you to check out Dr. Waddle's Instagram page. Honestly, I love it. It's one of my favorites. She gives so much great information. So please check her out. You also do some work with IFM and I listen to you on podcasts and things like that. So definitely look for her there. Thank you so much for being here. I can't thank you enough. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. One of the most common questions I get from my patients is, what should I eat when I'm trying to conceive? My next guest, Lily Nichols, is a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Can you tell us why we should pay attention to our nutrition preconception? First and foremost, you can actually influence egg quality by your diet. The process of creating an egg is at least three months from it fully maturing before you ovulate and then potentially can have the egg fertilized and implant and start your pregnancy, right? So if you start with a solid foundation of nutrition, you can optimize your egg quality. Sperm quality is Mm -hmm. also very much affected by many dietary and lifestyle factors. In pregnancy, your body is very dependent upon your nutrient stores. And there are very sensitive processes that happen, particularly in early pregnancy, that can influence the risk for complications in the pregnancy. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.